0: The Science Inside Podcast. This is The Science Inside with Elna.
1: Welcome to the show. My name is indeed Elna Schutz and this is the one week, the one hour in the week rather where we get a little bit nerdy on the science inside. It's a show where we look at all kinds of science that relates to your lives, to what's happening in the world and we really just try to make it something that's really palpable and, and applicable to our ordinary lives. We're not just talking about lab coats and doctors far away. We really want to Bring it close to home. And today we are talking about something that is quite serious and may possibly happen to you at some time. So I think it's very important that we do uh, just spend a little bit of time speaking about this. It is indeed National Burns Awareness Week as well as Burns Awareness Month this this May. So we wanted to look at burn injuries. And you might say, oh, no, I'm careful I don't get burned But you never know, these things can happen very easily, accidentally, and even though we're obviously not hoping that this happens to any of us, if it does, I want to make sure that you as our listener are at least a little bit prepared, know what to do, know what your options are, or just to be more aware of this in general, because... Every single year in South Africa, over 1.6 million people get burn injuries. And of those, over 10%, so around 12%, are fatalities. So it's also an incredibly common cause of burn injuries for children under four years old. And, of course, that is one of the, the main concerns that people have, that a, that a child might get burned. Of these burns, the most common group is still hot water burns, of course, in the kitchen or something like that. What did surprise me, however, is that among these burns, there's quite a big group that is classified as assault so people are actually using water as a weapon in a way against someone or maybe in an argument or so on but of course there are also many many accidental burns you might be wondering about chemical and electrical burns and these do happen but they are far more rare that's just to give you a little bit of the lay of the land when it comes to these things and as i said we all hope that it never happens to us but let's Let's be let's be prepared. Let's think about this for a second. If you get burned, what do you do? Because I think a lot of us have heard things over the years. I've heard everything from put butter on it to put Vaseline on it to, I don't know, just ignore it. It will go away. <laughs> and I just want to bring some science into these ideas. You may not know this, but a burn doesn't just end when you take away the source of the burn. So maybe the hot water or a stove or whatever it might be. It actually carries on to a certain degree. If you think, for instance, of a stove top or an oven, when you switch it off, there's still a lot of heat there that first has to sort of go away. And that, in a way, is what happens to your skin. So the best thing you can actually do, first and foremost, is try stop the burn. So, obviously, remove the source, but that heat needs to be counteracted even on or within your skin. So, what doctors actually recommend is using cold water for around 20 minutes. So, that sounds like a long time I know, but putting your hand or whatever part of your body it might be under Cold running water for around 20 minutes just helps that skin calm down and the burn to stop carrying on. And yes, just Cold water, nothing else. Do not use ice. Do not use ice water. And that was quite um, quite shocking to me because I think a lot of people, when they get burnt, go straight to the freezer. Those, you know, the tub of ice cream, although maybe you just want to eat some of that. But those frozen peas, whatever it might be, you think the colder the better. But actually, because your skin is already damaged and quite sensitive, ice water can actually cause a frostbite so you don't want to do that you also don't want to use any other kind of product like toothpaste or butter you don't want to want to seal the burn in in any way so those are some of the very practical things you can do at home if you do get burned and then of course you want to get medical attention if it is quite severe and if it is an open wound you want to maybe just cover it with something like cling film Those are the very basics and now that we know them, we'll go into some of the more medical procedures around more severe burns later in the show today. Since, as I said earlier, it is Burn Awareness Week in South Africa this week. But on the show also, we do look at some other things. In our unscience, we talk about a spider that's acting all bent in when it comes to its mating preferences It's a very strange story. Later then, our scientist behind the science is Dr. Suraka Muniasami, who is trying to develop a plastic that's biodegradable. I'm very excited for that conversation. But before all of that, we get into our news, of course, and we want to hear from you also. Let us know, did you know that it was Burns Awareness Week? Did you maybe have somebody in your family, even yourself, who's got burned? And most importantly, I'd love to hear from you. Did these tips um, maybe bust any myths? Did you always think you you use butter or bicarbonate of soda? Tell me all of that on Facebook. Please note that we are no longer the Science Inside on Facebook. We are now to be found under VowFM. So that is the place you want to go. You want to use hashtag Science Inside, which is also the hashtag you'll be using on Twitter for at VowFM. You can WhatsApp your stories on 0840784912. And the podcast will be up on vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. You can find all those details online if you're driving or don't have anywhere to write it down. Just look for the science inside. But first up, let's get into the thick of things with the news.
0: This week's Science headline.
1: I have with me here once again Lebel, one of our producers. Hi, Lebel.
2: Hello, Alna. Uh, my news story today is from enca.com, acadianaddiction.com, telegraph.co.uk. Okay. So, Nigeria bans cough syrups over fears of addiction is the headline from ENCA Africa. Okay. Now, you probably know that cough syrups often contain codeine, right? Mm-hmm. They've recently been banned in Abuja, Nigeria, because the government fears that they could be possible causes of misuse and addiction. This was recommended by a working committee that was set up in January to look at the misuse of prescription drugs. The ban also applies to the sales of unprescribed codeine-containing cough syrups across the whole country. Now, the Minister of Health in Nigeria, Isaac Adewole, suggests that codeine-containing cough syrups should be replaced with dextromethorphan, which is less addictive. This now leads us to the question about whether the whole world should follow Nigeria's example to fight the effects of codeine addiction, which, which include poverty and unemployment.
1: Okay, so I know that South Africa has tried to put some measures in place. If you buy certain products with codeine in it, you have to actually tell your pharmacist But we have covered this on the science side, and I've got to say personally, I wasn't convinced that the measures South Africa put in place are really going to stop someone who has an addiction and is trying very hard to get this kind of stuff. So even though there are people who might be looking for this, it's very serious um, if a country is wanting to ban it. That's quite quite a clear signal. But... Tell us a little bit more about how how codeine can become an addiction. Okay, so we know cough syrups, we take them to treat our colds
2: or relieving our pains and codeine-laced cough syrups can calm or give you a sense of pleasure, right? That feel-good state happens when the codeine enters your brain and causes neurotransmitters that stimulate the reward center in your brain
1: to be released. Okay, that makes sense. But I'm sure that a lot of us listening are thinking, sure, I'm sure that happens to some people, but I'm not planning on like downing cough syrup like a (laughs) cocktail anytime soon, (laughs) even if it is purple and tastes delicious, at least some of them. (laughs) So does this mean that if I'm choosing a cough syrup or I'm prescribed a cough syrup that has codeine, I'm automatically making it more likely that I'll become an addict? Yes. Yes. (laughs)
2: yes that is the that is the case like with other addictive pain relievers when you drink this cough syrup over a long period of time you eventually uh, develop a tolerance right and you may start to take it a little bit more and before you know it you may start to experience withdrawal when you go without it for a period of time and then this starts a cycle that develops into an addiction
1: Okay, I think the other thing there for me is that if I have a cough that is persisting so long that I'm using the same cough syrup over and over again for weeks on end, I feel like I should also be asking myself why my cough isn't going away. Maybe go back <laughs> go Definitely. back to the doctor, but Lebel, how do I know that I've moved now from just using my medication as I should to something that could resemble addiction okay so codeine affi-
2: uh, addictions commonly cause chronic headaches which cause people to want to take more to ah. help them f- like heal their headache so at the end you start taking it a lot more and becomes an addiction okay
1: that that makes sense you did mention some of the effects earlier but tell us more about what this can actually do to someone okay
2: So these are just a few effects, there's a lot more. So it can cause um, domestic problems, major depression, liver damage, kidney failure, loss of productivity, and it can put someone in a coma. Yeah, those are the results of being addicted to
1: codeine. Okay. I think a lot of those things are obviously true of many, many addictions, regardless of what you're addicted to. It can have quite big socioeconomic effects on you as well as health um, effects. But I can understand that something like cough syrup, you might get an addiction to it without completely understanding that that's happening. Because you're not looking for this on like some sneaky back like back alley exactly it's right there yeah and you probably were prescribed the cough syrup for some good good reason but still i think i will try to rather use like herbal things drink my little lemon and ginger tea where i can yes or you could stay warm throughout the winter and
2: get a flu shot yes big
1: big fan of flu shots um which are obviously quite important at this time of year in general so libo i have a story for you Comes from Science Daily, the University of Ulm in Germany, and the University of Colorado, Boulder. and I have to ask you, do you think it's important for kids to grow up with animals and nature and all these nice things around them? Yes, definitely, but as long as the animals don't bite, okay, that's a pretty fair that's a pretty fair. I think I would also definitely say yes but maybe that's just because I think it's great to be around animals and have pets and stuff but it's not just a preference thing because actually new research is showing that what kind of environment you grow up in as a child may have an effect on your mental health. So this study indicates that being in a rural environment with pets may be better for you in the long run, and you may be surprised uh, by the reasons for why this is better than living in a city as a child. So is it because you get lots of fresh air and you get to run around a lot more than the city kids? Yeah, now now we kind of sound like like old Tunnies <laughs> who are like, in my day. <laughs> um, but actually, I'm sure that's pretty good for you, but this particular piece of research is saying it's not because of that, it's because of the dust. So other kinds of research have shown that being around furry friends and some kinds of like allergens and dust does later in life mean that you are less likely to get asthma and allergies. And this kind of research does add to a growing set of ideas that overly sterile, clean, perfect places are actually not that great for kids. They can cause health problems. This particular study I was talking about, though, doesn't um, just focus on the health problems. They are focusing on mental health problems. And the way they did that was they stressed out participants. And I find it quite funny how they decided to do this. They gave them very difficult math problems. Wow. And made them (laughs) give speeches to a big audience. Wow. That sounds so stressful though. I, I really like math problems so that wouldn't would have failed on me but I'm sure for a lot of people that would have been pretty bad. So afterwards and during they checked the blood and saliva of the participants for levels of a certain immune system component. This is what they found. The city kids had much higher levels after the stressful event. So they did have more of this stressful sort of immune system component, but funnily enough, they've reported feeling less stressed than their than their counterparts, which in the in this case was adults that had grown up um, in the country. So it's like this very stressful response is there in the city kids very strongly, but it's almost not being noticed by them. They're so used to it. Okay, so how does this affect? your mental health. Yeah because as I said the the physical side is, is understandable but what about the mental side? So basically having these high inflammatory responses has been linked to later in life being more likely to develop depression, post-traumatic stress disorder and other things. So the authors are saying that there are chances that on top of allergies and asthma psychiatric disorders may also be caused by these factors namely not being around animals and uh, not being around a lot of dust so I do have to say I'm um, reading this study I know it's very intriguing and I think there's definitely something here but I am a little bit skeptical level because these results were only done on 40 German men between the ages of 20 and 40, of which half were, were kids on farms and the other half had lived in large cities without pets when they were small. So first of all, it's quite a small sample and I'm also wondering why did they only ask men? Was, exactly. was there a reason for that? Um, you know, do men's bodies react differently to stress? Why? Where did that come from? And also, I do understand why they made it such a binary sort of condition, some being completely without pets in the city and some being completely on a farm. But I feel like many children are somewhere in between, like many children are technically in cities but are surrounded by dust and pets while some kids on farms may not really interact with these things at all and be inside playing video games all day. Exactly. So the study I think starts something but uh, doesn't completely convince me. I get your point. There definitely needs to be a bigger study
2: done on this. Yeah, that's a little bit more, yeah, just comprehensive. This is very narrow. It's
1: also in like one region in Germany, that's it. Yeah, just German men. So if you are listening and you're a German man, this may apply to you particularly, who knows? (laughs) Especially because these things are important though, because over half the world's population lives in cities. And so I think... The moral of the story here is just go play outside. I don't care what age you are. Just go. Just go, go play. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that was our Science Inside news. And next up in light of Burns Awareness Month, this May, we are looking at how plastic surgeon, uh, plastic surgeons rather help um, burn victims in South Africa.
0: Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside.
1: Welcome to the show, my name is Alna Schütz, remember you can find us anywhere on social media with the hashtag science inside. This month is Burns Awareness Month in South Africa and earlier you would have heard that over 1.5 million people get burn injuries every single year. it breaks my heart. I have so many faces in front of me of people that I've known who have gotten burnt and, um, or have met over the years. And I think this is really not just an issue. It's something that affects individuals. It in affects um, their families, the way they see themselves, the way they decide to live their lives with courage. And... It is quite a serious uh, medical medical issue that we want to look at. We want to give it some airtime in light of Burns Awareness Month. But as I was saying, it's not just statistics. It's not just an issue. It is people. So what better way to start this story than with a person? Here is an individual called Rulani Mabasa, and this is his story.
0: So what happened is that I was studying for a chemistry test. Uh, I felt too tired, then I fell asleep. He falling asleep, uh, I left the heater on and uh, there was a ceremony at home. Uh, so, which is the gas, uh, was next to the heater, all right? Uh, so I fell asleep, left the heater on, and an explosion occurred. Um, I was woken up by the smoke because it was choking me. I woke up, I was like happening. Then I ran the opposite direction, hit the wall, passed that for around about three minutes. Uh When I woke up, I tried getting out, but the door was on fire. So I had to jump out of the window. Luckily, there were no buttons. After jumping out, I just laid there on the ground. And it was so cool, like the night was so cold. So I actually feel cool because it was hot inside and all that. Mom came out rushing, crying and screaming and all that stuff. And yeah, the entire family was waking up. I don't know what woke them up. I think it was the window. Yeah, I think it was the window. I was rushed to hospital. Last thing I I remember was me screaming, and I passed out because they gave me morphine, and I woke up uh, at least after three to four days. Um, so what happened is that they um they haven't at that time they haven't done any operation. They just uh, scraped out the Band skin. And yeah, I was all white, actually. (laughs) Now I was a white guy for quite some time. Hey. um, So what happened is that uh, they screamed me out. I couldn't see for about two weeks. I think it was two weeks. After then they had to do all my pants were um, on the face. It was second degree, hands was third degree, back was third degree, right because what bent me wasn't the fire per se, but it was uh, the steam around. It was that hot that it melted my skin out and was dangling out there. <laughs> uh, proceeding with my story, uh, yeah. So after two weeks, they did skin graft, um, which is they took skin from my thighs, yeah uh pieces of skin like a lot I think they took an excessive amount of skin from my thighs, but it's fine uh so after taking my skin uh they um obviously I t- uh, put it on my arms uh for a while and all that stuff my thighs were so so. Scars. Uh, I think I'm gonna be keeping them. No, I'm not think I know I'm gonna be keeping them because I mean, like, um, I like them the way they are, and they actually, um, I see them as a map of um, my journey to success. That Rue has been through this and that, but then I'm actually prospering uh, and actually keep striving for the best and uh, I know make it and uh, hopefully I'll get to inspire people wherever they are and however and be an icon for those who thought uh, their physical disabilities or whatever physical change they had to go through so hopefully I'll make a change and uh, restore. Uh, some other people's self-esteem and confidence and stuff. Yeah, so that's me.
1: I love how Rilani is able to sort of see the best and what happened to him and and See his scars with courage and confidence. Uh, I Don't think that all burn victims are necessarily able to get to that point easily and He was telling us about how he had to get a skin graft many people get skin grafts with also other kinds of plastic surgery or reconstructive surgeries whether this is a choice or whether they have to medically go under the knife and we wanted to understand this medical route a little bit better so we spoke to Dr. Wayne Klankes a plastic and reconstructive surgeon in Cape Town and before we get into some of the procedures he just wanted to explain in general what plastic surgery really is
3: word plastic is derived from the Greek word plasticos, which means to change. So plastic surgery is about um, changing shapes on the body um, and basically reconstructive surgery. So one of the spectrums of um, changing shapes would be cosmetic surgery. So those are the two broad categories of, of uh, what we do. is We we'll do operations for cosmetic purposes, where we change shapes or forms of the body. And the other one would be for reconstructive purposes. Reconstructive purposes would be from injuries or cancers mm-hmm. or other congenital or acquired deformities
1: he was talking about those two things, cosmetic plastic surgery and, and then reconstructive. And I think a lot of us, to be honest with you, when we see a sign for plastic surgeon and we think about it, we might just be thinking about boobs and butts and that kind of cosmetic surgery. But the truth is, of course, that that these doctors do a lot of very complicated, impressive medical work like reconstructions and helping burn patients that is most definitely not a not a cosmetic choice. Here are some of the most common procedures when it comes to treating burn injuries.
3: For burn victims, um, these, what usually happens with the serious burns where you have uh, deep tissue injuries um, is that one must cut away the deep tissue almost like a cancer we can't leave the dead tissue on the body otherwise the patient gets infections and they can die from the infections so once we get the dead tissue off we must cover the open wounds with preferably skin now um skin from the patient's own body is called an autograft and that's what you usually try and do um but when the burning wounds get bigger and usually when it's more than 40 percent of the total body surface area there's not enough skin on the body of the patient to cover it in one go or two goes. So in those cases, then we'll do, um, the serial operations or I you know, like cover, you know, a percentage in one go and then do another percentage in another go. But then also with the wounds when we've cut off dead tissue and it's large wounds then we need to cover it with something similar to skin. Um, and if a person doesn't have enough skin, then sometimes we use skin from another person, and that's we call allograft
1: skin. So the the growing or cloning procedure um, works in a very specific way, and there are there is both an original technique and now this newer, improved one developed by Dr. Klenkes. So just to understand that better, here he is explaining it.
3: The growing procedure, the the one that was originally described and still used by the Boston Lab, was from 1972-1973. What they do is they grow the skin, um, but they grow it on mouse fibroblasts or mouse cells from a mouse. So that DNA of the mouse is then incorporated into that construct with the patient cells that are being grown. And they actually actually classified as a xenograft because of the mouse cells that is being used with the patient's own cells. The technique uh, that I developed at uh, a type of hospital in 2014, we grow the skin but without um, using any animal material. So we just use the patient's own skin and the matrix that we use is a dressing, a wound dressing called Sawback. back. Um, it's got no um, animal tissue in per se to cause allergies allergic responses and therefore um, the transplant is, can be classified just as an autograft. The success of that, technique, it gives a similar survival for severe burns, it gives a 90% survival. But the graft take that we found here was that it was better. We got a, about a, almost 80% graft take in all our patients which is better than the 72.9% of the other techniques, the standard technique in America.
1: I'm always so excited to hear when South African doctors or scientists are making things better and improving those statistics and finding procedures that are going to help more people in better ways. That's always very exciting to hear. And even though these procedures are incredibly needed and aren't a choice and... Uh, Can even be the the difference between you know somebody being severely scarred or whatever it might be. There is another thing, and that is of course the costs. These kind of procedures can be incredibly costly. You heard they have to grow your skin, so we wanted to ask him a bit about that.
3: In the private sector, plastic surgery is expensive. I think anyone that wants to undergo like a major plastic surgery procedure could expect to pay you know, a significant amount of money. Um, in the state sector, the availability of services are usually dependent on whether there's a plastic surgery department or a plastic surgeon at the hospital. And usually then also it will be um, dependent on the resources made available to the plastic surgery department. For example, if there's a laser, then that can be used for scar management. But if they even, you then obviously can't use it. So that would vary according to different hospitals and provinces, depending on availability and resources.
1: Beyond just the monetary costs and what you're putting down in cash, there is, of course, a very big question when these things happen, when there are big medical procedures to be done and surgeries to be done, which is what are the risks? Are there risks for um, for getting infections or for something terrible happening, um, so we ask the doctor about that.
3: With any operation, there are many side effects, and the same is with plastic surgery. So these side effects, one must discuss with the patient, and then one must assess the patient and decide what are the risk factors for this specific patient, because every patient is different you have patients with very high risk factors for complications due to either smoking or other diseases. And then one could advise them not to have surgery. But then you get patients with like very low risk factors for surgery or no risk factors for surgery. And the chance of them getting a complication would be very minimal or unexpected. And those are the patients that you can advise. Yes, it's safe to do surgery. The risk of these complications are low and should be easily manageable. And I think that's the way to do it for every patient. You have to individualize it.
1: That's the truth with these things, that there are risks and really does depend on your individual case. There's no doctor in the world that will be able to tell you there is a zero risk. That is unfortunately just the reality of it. But it is still so amazing that there's plastic surgery and skin grafts and doctors that can help you. If the worst happens and you do get injured by some kind of burn. And I also want to just remind you that South Africa does have a skin bank, which is kind of like being an organ donor, except it's For your skin and your skin Actually if you do pass on Parts of it can be used to Help people with severe injuries Just cover up the wound They have a procedure to do this and, And until their own Skin grows back to put it in Very simple terms so If you are already an organ donor or you've considered it, I would highly recommend that you also look at tissue donation because you can, through the South African Skin Bank, help so many people um, and make their lives better in quite difficult circumstances. That was a story for Burns Awareness Week and Burns Awareness Month. This May, I do encourage you to think about your houses and how you use hot liquids and things like that, and just make sure that you are prepared and ready, just, just in case. You are still on the science insider next up. It gets a little bit lighter, a little bit weirder with our end science.
0: You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major
4: news events.
1: If you're a a regular listener on The Science Inside, you know exactly what time it is now. It is unscience time, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is science that makes you go, no, surely not. That's a little bit weird. Um, This package today is about quite a curious case. Let's get into it.
0: Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience.
1: So today I have our producer Lebo with me again. I hear me and Mr. Jones in the background. What is happening? Okay, get this, Alna. Brown male widow spiders
2: literally die for love. (laughs) When it comes to matters of the heart, for male brown widow spiders, they tend to fancy older and more experienced female mates. Sometimes they risk their chances of escaping alive. Should a male choose an adult female, he stands a 50% chance of being eaten after sex. However, if he mates with a younger female spider, he might just be in luck and live to see the, the light of day.
1: No level What are you bringing me here? This sounds ridiculous Are you really telling me that spiders have been ten tendencies? Um, it sounds sounds a little bit weird Obviously spiders uh, don't necessarily have romantic emotions Like we do We are um, making fun of it just a little But But let's get into the science a little bit more What exactly deters these younger female spiders from eating their mates? Okay,
2: according to Professor Ali Harari at the Agricultural Research Organization in Tel Aviv, he says male widow spiders would rather risk their lives than copulate with younger female spiders. This is despite the fact that younger female spiders are actually more fertile, healthier and less violent. When they do mate with a younger mate, uh, mating is very short, hence
1: there's a high rate of survival. Okay, that is quite bizarre though Considering that many of us in general Are bit, uh, you know, we think that younger is better You know, that younger animals would be stronger And just, you know, just generally better Right?
2: Wrong Scientists can't explain why this uh, behavior uh, occurs exactly They think that older females may be m- emitting enticing pheromones that trick males into thinking that they are far more fertile than they actually really are ah. the consequences of this deception then results in a fooled young male to engage in this dubious mating pattern it is thought that, males, that older females are more desperate to mate, thus they exert more effort into advertising their availability <laughs> that's ridiculous, wow I'm sure you're aware that widow spiders derive their popular name from their cannibalistic nature. Female brown or black widow spiders are renowned for eating their male partner after mating. Some of these species do take measures to avoid being eaten. Female brown widow spiders tend to be larger as well. And then they are able to consume their male counterparts easier because they're much larger.
1: Okay, so the, there's not as much patriarchy, at least amongst spiders So you still have to explain one thing to me though How how are they eating, like, how are they eating their, like, the male spiders? How's that happening? Okay, so
2: apparently during copulation, males often somersault <laughs> They somersault <laughs> during their mating time, okay. Okay, we'll just take that as a fact. Yes, it is in this somersaulting that males end up jumping into the female's mouth. What, yep, <laughs> and it's not understood why males actually somersault, but their mating sessions need to be long to enable their desirable amount of sperm to fertilize the female spider. As you can imagine, the longer the sex session, the higher the likelihood of being eaten. Uh,
1: okay. I cannot believe we are talking about the sex lives of spiders (laughs) in such detail. So it really does sound almost like toxic love. Um, How exactly did these researchers discover all of this?
2: The research team introduced the virgin males to adolescent and adult female spiders. What they discovered about uh, half of the males that had mated with adolescent females is that they were actually eaten. And then all the other males that had mated with much older, more experienced female spiders had a much larger chance of being cannibalized. Okay, that makes sense. So do you explain it a little bit more though. It seems they are like, it seems they like them a little bit older. Male brown widow spiders always gravitate towards the older female spiders and the mating lasts longer because they find them more enduring. Research has found that males hardly spent any time pursuing adolescent females. Uh, I think this is the behavior that can be linked to uh, women finding
1: more tough guys, a little bit more attractive and all. No, no, I'm I'm not buying that. Surely not. I don't think we should be looking at spiders and guessing that about <laughs> About humans, but I I get your point. So, are the males able to successfully fertilize the females since they are risking their lives to keep the species alive, basically? Yes, they actually
2: are. Uh, But not without, obviously, meeting their their fatal fate, of course. Over time, male spiders have developed a gruesome tactic, a couple of these gruesome tactics to successfully fertilize their female counterpart. One of the methods used to avoid being eaten is to or- orally lubricate females' genitals uh, to prolong ca- uh, co- courtship. Sorry. Nope, did not want to know that. <laughs> I mean, you can take a couple of tips here. No, In some instances, to ensure reproductive success, they are known to guard the female after mating. Given the opportunity, they may also block the reproductive opening of the female with a mating plug or chemically manipulate the female's sexual appeal. This lessens the likelihood of her actually mating with other males
1: no i just i know this is biology but still it just sounds too creepy to me it's like the six files of brown male widow spiders or something
2: (laughs) more like 50 shades of gray spider edition (laughs) but i'm not done yet Oh no! the study also reveals an unusual trend in these species during during the somersaulting that happens Mm-hmm. that I mentioned earlier. The male boosts his jump by pushing against the female's abdomen area and whilst uh, tumbling in mid-air, he mistakenly lands in the mouth of the much larger female, leading to his ultimate death.
1: Wow, well, that was really one of the most bizarre and sciences I've heard. In a while. the story was found on the Daily Mail website. And today's Unscience was produced by Bridget Lepeho. A big thank you goes to Improbable Research, which is a great place to find more cool science like this. Um, but as I said, today's story was from Daily Mail. Next up, we speak to our scientists behind the science.
0: Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events.
1: Hello and welcome back to the show. As I said earlier, The Science Inside, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag Science Inside. And we are also to be found as Vow FM. We now go to a little interview we like to call the scientist behind the science because I know that it's easy to think of science as this thing far away and out of out of maybe your comfort zone but the truth is that not only is a lot of science something that ends up as products or inventions that help us greatly Of course, scientists are also people. So we like to talk to them and sort of just pick their brain a little bit about why they do what they do. And today we're speaking to Dr. Surakar Muniasami. He is from the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, specifically in the Department of Polymers and Composites. And they are trying to make strides in developing technology... ...of bioplastics, which will contribute to the reduction of environmental pollution and also post-local job creation. So basically, they are hoping to make biodegradable plastic technology, which just blows my mind if you think about it. Can you imagine plastics that that biodegrade, and we don't have to worry about this growing problem. I'm very excited to speak to the brain behind this development and the production of 100% degradable plastic bags that is hopefully happening soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So maybe let's just start with you and how you started on this journey of looking for alternatives to the sort of plastic bags we are very familiar with?
4: Uh, you know, see, as uh, you so all, we know that the plastic pollution, so all over the world that we are having, uh, um, you know, the plastic solution problems that it takes many decades to degrade. So normally the plastic bag, uh, in, you know, when you end up in landfill or marine water, it takes 200 years to four hundred years to degrade. Yes. So, it causes a severe environmental pollution to the marine and aquatic habitat. So as so all know that, so actually uh, my research is uh, motivated from uh, it actually the research was started in 2007. So from my, after my education, must be completed. So I'm very pleased on this research. So if, uh, I want to do more on this uh, development um, environmentally friendly materials. So, I started my research, then I, I, I spent five years in Italy um, to do my PhD, um, so on the development of biodegradable plastic, then after that, um, I went to Canada to learn about how the manufacturing um, certification and how to claim the products and everything to learn. So, after that, um, I got opportunity to uh, CSIR, South Africa, uh, to do this research. On the in mean, the local um, architecture to develop
1: um, biodegradable plastic products. Okay, so even though you are working on a biodegradable plastic bag, I understand that the aim behind the project is not to completely get rid of the production of plastic products, which a lot of people may be asking for. Why is that exactly?
4: Um, you know, uh, actually, um, if you look at the uh, the, uh, the single-use plastic items, you know, uh, the, the if you look at the whole plastic production, is, is mainly the, you know uh, 50 to 60 percent is mainly going for the packaging application. So the making there is mainly the the thin, slim items, uh, carrier bags, uh, the food wrapping bags which is not a biodegradable. Uh, so uh, so we even the recycling also is very, very limited. So the idea is to bring to stop the plastication. We need to stop the, which is not recyclable items. It, it should be biodegradable. So that's the reason we, uh, our research is very focused and we, we want to utilize that material which comes from the plant source. So that is one the environment friendly, like uh, starch, and the cellulose, and other pipe polymers, so which are now naturally available materials that we can make that carrier pack. We can implement um, the pack uh, similar like uh, a normal polypylene bag. But after the end of the if you dispose to the landfill or any marine environment or compost uh, condition, so that material is completely disappeared. That is the innovation we have developed at the CSIR. Mm.
1: And it does sound like in one way really good solution because we know that even though so many people are aware that plastic is not biodegradable they aren't changing their habits it is just continuing so perhaps being able to supplement those habits with something that is better for the environment is a good move although I'm sure a lot of people who are very environmentally aware would not agree with me on that one but do tell me a bit more of what kind of impact this invention would have for South Africa but also the world
4: you know, um, yeah. You know, if you look at the Africa's, and um, there is no biodegradable um, plastic technologies available currently. So currently, uh, we are currently using the petroleum-based uh, plastics, uh, which are non biodegradable. So that is the main. So, in, in, if you look at the globally, there are a lot of um, R&D research is mainly focused mainly in, in Italy. Uh, and um, in um, in um, Canada and other countries in Australia, there are also Germany as well. They are already developing some compostable plastics. They are already developing it. Um, so yeah, it is still in the beginning stage. So still they are working in it. So the similar way, um, we want to develop the similar concept uh so at yeah, the so South Africa we want to utilize locally available sources like from uh, yeah, uh like a feature like a supercan papa we may utilise the raw material from super material and also from the main stock uh by products so we can utilize the raw material and that we can um, we can develop the uh plastics technology that's uh, we, are kind of, we are kind of working on it.
1: And just to clarify, how close is this product to being on the shelves, or rather, um, not on the shelves? I guess it would be handed out at tools.
5: For so for us to get the product on on the shelves, uh, currently we're busy liaising with government entities to put it on a pilot scale production. And once we put it on a pilot scale production, then uh, we need a year or two. We'll be able to see it. Uh, uh, for market trials on the shelf uh, to see how uh, consumers would buy into it. Right. My name is Osei Oposu and I work in collaboration uh, jointly with uh, Dr Sudaka Minasami.
1: And just to to end it off, we always ask our our, uh, experts this What is the one thing that you wish people knew about your area of work? If you could clarify something or um, just talk to the listeners out there, what do you wish people knew about biodegradable plastics or plastics in general?
5: As it has been mentioned earlier by Dr. Sami, plastics as we know it in general do not biodegrade. And this new invention we've made is such that we're getting it from uh, agro-residues. That is cost no-cost agro-residues. So if people could know that we can extract high-value products or chemicals from agro-residues, then I think it will improve on on our agricultural uh, uh, processes and then add a bit more value to our farmers and the farm workers in terms of things like mills, maize stores that are bent on the field uh, for us to extract some chemicals out of it to put it into developing this biodegradable plastic bag. Mm.
1: And I really hope that you do succeed and that it's going to really make a difference to not just the ordinary lives of South Africans but all of that plastic that's currently sitting in landfills. I really hope that the generations that come after us think about that as almost a laughable idea, because we have changed our habits for good. Thank you so much for joining us on the Science Side. Thank you. That was our scientist behind the science. Um, do stay listening.
4: You don't have to
0: be a liker to like things. Oh my God. So like us on Facebook. Like us on Facebook. And them in brackets, voice of bits.
1: We have come to the end of the Science Inside for today. And as always, we now transition from nerdy to sporty. And we have Anthony Teixeira with us. What's happening today on the Sports Hub?
6: I mean, first off... I am both nerdy and sporty, so perfect man to, like, transition. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, today on the Sports Hub, we are going to talk about everything that took place this past weekend. Uh, Arsene Wenger says goodbye to the Emirates. It was mm-hmm. heartbreaking. And then at the same time, it was about time. Uh, of course, then we talk about Super Rugby. Wow. The Huggy Warriors! I cannot believe they actually did it. They defeated the Crusaders. And um, it's a bittersweet show. Oh, no. Michael Pedro and Ahmed Kaji, it's their final show tonight. Oh, I'm actually man. quite emotional.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, can, oh. I can see it. I can see it. It's
6: yeah, awesome. man. So, uh, the unholy trinity will be departing Vow FM. Well, know. two-thirds of them at least. I'll be remaining. Okay. At yeah. Least.
1: At least we'll st- still have you. Um, Thanks for transition. sounding so happy <laughs> that I'm remaining. It's no. like, oh, if only it was Michael Pedro. Hey, I'm, I'm sharing in your sadness. We, um, we could end the show with a moment of silence, but that doesn't really work on radio because yeah. then people would just switch off their radios. The so. other thing is that uh, we are pretty
6: much the loudest people at Val. And it would street. be counterproductive to have a moment of silence. Awesome. Maybe we should just scream into the mic.
1: Oh, a moment of screaming. That Why could be not? A new thing. That could be a new thing. <laughs> That's what's happening on the sports side right after this on Vyofem. But this has been the Science Inside. And today has been all kinds of things from plastic bags to burn injuries. And I do want to leave you with a parting thought that even though today's story I know might have felt like you almost don't want to think about it. I know a lot of us feel like that about burn injuries. Take this Burns Awareness Month and just maybe look around your home. Think about whether you know what to do if you did get burned. Do you know what to do if a child or a friend gets burned? Do you have maybe some products on hand or or just the knowledge to be able to deal with these accidents when they happen so that you can make the best of it. A thank you goes out to all of our guests featured on the show today, including Doctors Raka Muniasami, Hulani Mabaza, and Doctor Wang Tankis. Our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Leper and Take Back with Clan as well as our whole team of producers. The podcast is on Vits. Let me start that again. The podcast is Vits.journalism.coza forward slash science so do note that that has changed i'm so used to the old address it's now vits.journalism.coza forward slash science you can find us on facebook and twitter as vow just make sure you use that hashtag science inside my name is Alna schutz and this has been the science inside which is produced by the vits radio academy funded in part by the south african department of science and technology join us again next week
0: The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on Power FM 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.